This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All and the Voice of San Diego podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at Aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org. Today's podcast is sponsored by San Diego-based MindTouch, a cloud-based software that helps companies take product documentation and turn it into a customer engagement channel that educates buyers and creates product experts to grow revenue. With MindTouch, you can create a self-service customer experience with your documentation that increases customer success and improves sales and marketing. Here at Voice of San Diego, we have a soft spot for MindTouch because its co-founder and chief technology officer, Steve Bjorg, is one of our loyal supporters and tech advisors. If you're looking for a way to improve customer experience, check out MindTouch.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm Scott Lewis. I'm uh, the editor-in-chief at The Voice of San Diego. I'm here, of course, with my friend. Laura Cohn from the Education Synergy Alliance. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do with the kids in the summer. Oh, it's, I know. It's, I'm lucky. My kids just got old enough that I don't have to schedule them, engineer them through the whole summer, but that is quite an, a task. It's something. It's, I mean, and we, expensive, too. Yeah. It's, it's, can, can everybody afford summer? Nope. What do they do? They I don't understand what they do. I know. You know a often, lot of watching TV, I think. Often in life, I, I wonder how people, you know, doing taxes, like that's hard. It's hard to get your taxes done. Like it's a, it's, you have to be resourceful. Sometimes there's weird things you have to pull together. And it's like, how does everybody do this? I don't understand how it gets done. I know. It's crazy. Anything about parents holding down multiple jobs and trying to figure out where their kids are going to be in the summer. Yeah. That's why our podcast about the summer slide and the um, year round calendar was really, really important. Right. And okay. So summer is interesting. I'm, I'm very, so my son had the, the party, you know, uh, beach party, celebrate the end of the year with his class. Nice. And the San fly, Diego classic. Yeah. The flyer went around and said like, uh, it'll be from one to eight. And my, my, <gasps> my wife was like, what kind of window is that for a party? Turns out it was from one to eight and it was spectacular. It was just a lot of fun. Um, but it is funny. Those windows are important. You know, so when you show up and, you know, that's a long time to be on, you know, in a party, but, uh, they, I, I felt like it was one of those parties that my kid will remember for a long time, you know, running around the beach, the bonfire and all that stuff. That's awesome. In and out of the water. And yeah, uh, yeah San Diego. It's, it's a, it's a good place. Pretty spectacular. The other uh, memory I got from this weekend was driving. Uh, I had to drive from LA in a, uh, for various reasons, but I, it was late at night. It was midnight and I stopped in your hood in Encinitas and I was wondering if the in and out would be open 
I know that in and out over there. I go to that when I camp in Encinitas and such. And it was not only open, it was hopping. Yeah. It felt like Encinitas Public Schools was out that night. It was actually. This is the first week that Encinitas is out. So that was, uh, I walked in. Teens were out in force, huh? I was by far the, not the oldest. I was the second oldest there. There was clearly an older guy there. Okay. You know what's the most important thing about that location? What? Across the street will be a crack shack. Uh, in oh, a few wow. months. So we're getting the second second outpost of the Crack Shack, which wow. is family favorite for us. <laughs> Looked like a lot of fun. Um, I remember going to fast food joints uh, as a teenager and spending a lot of time there. There were people throwing fries at each other. I mean, it was a classic, <laughs> classic. All right. So, uh, you know, one of the things I tried to do this week is talk a little bit about our uh, Voice of San Diego's bias. I, uh, I often meet people who are... Um, you know, what's your, what's your deal? Are you left or right or something like that? And, and uh, I tried to come at it. So I did that in our member report. So if you are uh, not getting our member report, you should consider that. Um, so I tried to just be a little bit more upfront about some of the, you know, some of the ways we figure that. And when it comes to education, pretty straightforward that like, like the name of this podcast, our bias is that we want good schools for all. We want everybody to have a chance at a good education. And I think at the heart of that discussion, it sounds uncontroversial, but as you start to break down what that means, it can get controversial pretty fast. And so what what we try to say is like, you know, I don't know, we're trying to make sure that uh, like good systems all around, like good businesses, like good corporations, like good agencies of all kind, you need to have the best possible employees, you need to have the best possible mission, you need to have the best possible um, you know, revenue sources and, and all, and all kinds of efficiencies and such. And so that often heads right into the fraught terrain of teacher evaluations, right? Right. Because if, uh, as you said, there are lots of ingredients that make up a good school, but the essential, the non-negotiable is good, amazing teacher, you know, to the degree that you can in front of every kid every year. Um, and, what you know? What mechanisms do we have to assure that, other than our teacher evaluation systems, which are yes, extremely controversial and yet absolutely crucial? Yeah. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We have two members of the Poway Federation of Teachers who are here to talk about what Poway does uh, in concert um, between its union and its administrators to help evaluate teachers. They don't like to use the verb evaluate, though. Uh, they kept doing it though, because it makes sense. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> but that uh, you know, how do you how do you evaluate? They have a three step program uh, for um, analyzing the effectiveness of teachers, and and uh, and then you know making that a part of their regular evaluation. Right, they're rolling out a more sophisticated evaluation system. They're um, rolling it out slowly, but they've worked really hard. Meaning they, being both the union and the management in Poway, have worked really hard to develop this new system. So. Um, we're excited to have brought them in so they can talk about that work because it is ahead, you know, on the front end of the wave. Right, right. And this is an interesting time for that because there are a lot of discussions. So um, for those of you not familiar, there was a there was a giant court case called Vergara, Vergara versus uh, California, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a question about um, whether the inequity in the school system, whether there was, you know, some of the problems that some schools have versus others, whether that was a civil rights issue, right? Whether if you, um, you, you were, if you were going to a bad school, whether you could appeal to the California constitution's rules about equal protection under the law. Um, you yeah. Know. And specifically the case, uh, the, the plaintiffs made the case that, 
uh, low performing teachers are unequally distributed among schools. And then that's a driver of the quality differences be uh, between schools serving um, low income kids of color and schools serving middle and upper income kids. Yeah. In, in particular, they talked about three areas. One is the how quick teachers get so-called tenure, right? In mm -hmm. California, that's called permanent status. So basically, if you are hired by a school district for two years, they can uh, fire you pretty easily. Um, if you if you get through that second year, if you get to a third year, it, they can the the ability to fire you goes up uh, or it goes down dramatically. It's a very right. difficult, arduous process to get a teacher through a dismissal hearing. Right, due process um, kicks in. It's very well specified in California law. Mm -hmm. And so, um, one of the points of the plaintiffs in Vergara was that you know that meant that uh, the new teachers, uh, you know, it just it, it put ineffective teachers in a permanent status, and those and they would be in 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 overseeing students of color and in disadvantaged students. The second point was that uh, the issue of how teachers are laid off often means that the younger teachers are laid off, and and uh, it's called the last in first out principle, and and that that meant that uh, uh, it left schools that were disadvantaged that older teachers didn't want to be in had more turnover and caused more problems for that school, and then the third point was just that that part about where teachers are placed, right? That there's a seniority based uh, placement system that means that you know teachers end up. Um, getting to go to nicer schools or, or more attractive schools for whatever reason based on their seniority as well, which meant that, that uh, more experienced, perhaps better teachers were in better schools. And then, of course, disadvantaged students were in, in those other ones. So there's those three areas. Yeah. Now, that case uh, got traction because a judge in the L.A. area said, yeah, that's got merit, wrote yeah, a big... 2014. That was yeah. a huge news when he said that's a big deal and, the teach and that uh, California might have to redo its entire system because of that. Um he agreed, but then an appeals court just threw that out. Yeah. And in their appeal, they said, and I, I just wanted to read from this point, that although the statutes may lead to the hiring and retention of more ineffective teachers than a hypothetical alternative system would, the statutes do not address the assignment of teachers. Instead, administrators, not the statutes, ultimately determine where teachers within a district are assigned to teach. Critically, plaintiffs failed to show that the statutes themselves make any certain group of students more likely to be taught by ineffective teachers than any other group of students. And that goes at the heart of the question of, you know, whether civil rights were being violated. Again, that's the that's the question. That's the the sort of innovation of the Vergara suit. And so right now they're waiting to see if that goes to, if if the Supreme Court decides to win or not. And if not, then uh, it's status quo. If they do, and and of course uh, implement Vergara, that could be a giant sea change in the city, in the California. But in the meantime, there's other proposals going forward to perhaps uh, uh, affect uh, teacher evaluation. Yeah, Sacramento is um, carefully wading into the teacher evaluation topic. It looks like um, AB 934 by Democrat Susan Bonilla of the East Bay still is alive um, in the Senate Education Committee awaiting hearings. So um, it, it is an active discussion in California. Yeah, so that, that would perhaps extend the the teacher tenure time that the, what it take how long it takes to become a, a permanent employee one of the Vergara insights I never quite uh, thought of until until that ruling was that it says it's two years to determine whether a teacher is going to be permanent or not but it's actually much shorter time frame right. because they have to do it if they're going to lay a teacher off they have to do it by March of that year which means they have to make a decision several months before that two-year point comes so That's it's right. actually a much shorter period than two years yeah but the interesting context for California's conversations is that many states in the country 
dove right into teacher evaluation and implemented new policies in order to qualify for federal race to the top funding. Um, and California just opted out, just just did not um, get on that bus. And so while we're working on it, it's sort of the way California does things. We waited to see what happened with all those other states and what was working in those and where the where the tripwires were. And uh, so now we're able to benefit from that experience. So it's it's sort of more sober um, proposal that's coming out of Sacramento, a little gentler than what you saw in some of those other states. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to watch. Obviously, this is what fuels a lot of the um, people who call themselves reformers in the in the industry because they're like, well, we need to this we need to attack this various issue right here because we need to support excellent teachers in the classroom. And and then on the other side, the the uh, unions and the teachers associations worry that um, you know that there's going to be abuse of a system like that or that teachers will be too much evaluated based on things that are out of their hands, right? Uh, uh, in, in particular, test scores that, um, that they just have a lot of uh, various issues. What, what do you think the single concern about test scores really is? The, the big concern about test scores, oh, there are a few. One is that it can depend too much on who your kids are in that particular year. And um, though the people who crafted these value-added measures, they're called, tried to control for student characteristics. Now that we've got a few years of um, data behind it, it looks like it's really hard to do that. And so that's that's been a huge issue for it. But in general, um, the technology behind those, those value-added measures just isn't quite up to the high stakes decisions that um, are embedded in teacher evaluation systems. So people talk about multiple measures. So it shouldn't rely, you know, sure, look at student achievement. Absolutely look at student achievement. And Poway's going to tell us about um, a special way that they do that teacher by teacher, but also look at lots of other indications and, and um, signals about teacher yeah, effectiveness. I, I, I've been thinking about this for several years. I remember asking the superintendent of, of San Diego Unified School District, like how, you know, what why can't we have like an index that is based on not only uh, teacher test scores, or on, on test scores for the school, but how about evaluating a school based on, on and, and teachers based on student evaluations? That happens at the college level, parent evaluations. that uh, Why not also, you know, uh, Shirley Weber, um, the assemblywoman from the San Diego area, you know, her bill that stalled uh, last year would have had measures for um, uh, assessments that the school and the district themselves develop, written classroom observations, curriculum-based course assessments, student portfolios, English language proficiency assessments, student progress. I mean, all of these, you could sort of create a kind of portfolio of, of in uh, and an index based on that portfolio for each school so that it's not just test score, but it, but that you can incorporate test scores as one factor in that. Yeah. Right? I mean, really to be fair to the field, there was no state that was making their saying that the evaluation should be solely based on student data, but there were states that said 50% of a teacher's evaluation should be student test score outcomes. And then the other 50% was always based on evaluations and some of these other factors. Um, but what we're seeing here in California is a much more nuanced and mixed um, approach. All right. We wanted to, before we get to our number of the week, uh, I think uh, actually Bill Gates uh, makes a good point about uh, about why we should continue talking about this. He did it in, uh, in a TED Talk in 2013. We all need people who will give us feedback. That's how we improve. Unfortunately, there's one group of people who get almost no systematic feedback to help them do their jobs better. And these people have one of the most important jobs in the world, 
I'm talking about teachers. When Melinda and I learned how little useful feedback most teachers get, we were blown away. Until recently, over 98% of teachers just got one word of feedback, satisfactory. The thing that makes me laugh about that is, um, having lived in Seattle, Bill Gates is notorious for just yelling at his employees. So they, he gave them lots of feedback, but yeah. uh, not in a formal, evaluative way. <laughs> well, I think that was what was interesting um, to me. Is you know, a lot of people, a lot of teachers, I'm sure, are going to listen to that and say, "The hell, I don't get feedback. I get feedback every day. You know, you get feedback from parents, you get feedback from the principal. What he's talking about is an actual system of feedback, right? Yeah, actually, no, Scott. If you talk to a lot of teachers, they'll tell you they don't get all that much feedback at really? all. I talk to a lot of teachers who say they never see the principal in their classroom really? for the whole school year, or maybe they'll stop in for ten or fifteen minutes. I, I, I'm not saying that to indict principals because a lot of them have an astounding scope underneath them, 30, 40 teachers who report to them. And there might be teachers that they're really worried about and they're spending a lot of time in their classrooms. And as we've been talking about this over the last few years, um, there's been more emphasis on principals getting out to classrooms and being present. But the claim that teachers don't get a lot of feedback is actually it's a valid claim. Okay, interesting. So, what I deal with because I'm also a manager, right? And I and I've witnessed. I've been in charge of Voice San Diego for like ten years or eleven years. And the you know as we've gone through that, it's it's been crucial to Voice San Diego's success and its uh, and its progress and its ability to thrive has been the ability to to talk to employees and and evaluate them about what's going right, what's going wrong and, 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 and offer incentives to do better. And, and to, um, if it gets down to it, to, you know, to say this isn't going to work out unless this and this are addressed. And I think what gives, and you know, it was before I went through that process of being a manager and realizing how powerful that was, that didn't seem that important to me, right? That didn't seem, I can see how if you're, if you haven't gone through that, how it wouldn't be, you maybe that clear why it's so important to have the ability to evaluate and to have evaluations with consequences. And so I think, you know, absent being able to make everybody a manager for a few years, mm. I wonder if there's just a gulf that's inherent in that discussion because of that. The, the source of the gulf to me is, okay, so you're editor of Voice of San Diego. You see the work product of your employees every day. Yeah. You see it's them, you, yeah, you see them in their work process. You see how they do their work. You get feedback. You see evidence of their work. And also you hear feedback from the community about how your reporters have interfaced with them. With um, the teaching profession, there's a lot of insularity about it. You know, the idea that you go into your classroom and close the door is just a, it's just a reality of how the buildings are structured and how things work. And so there isn't um, a lot of inherent interface between the evaluator, the principal, and the teacher unless, they, unless it's really manufactured and done in a deliberate way. And then you add in the labor dimension that the teachers are unionized and um, and also there's a big legal structure around it from the state of California. And now you're in a really complex, fraught, and and difficult situation for doing the kind of productive, appropriate feedback and evaluation you're talking about. But the emphasis um, always should be on professional growth and change. So every employee needs to get, optimally needs to get some feedback from the system, from their evaluator so that they can get better. And that's every teacher along the spectrum, whether it's a teacher who's struggling or a teacher who's thriving, they, they, they need that feedback and our kids need them to get that feedback. And so 
at its best, this movement around teacher evaluation is about trying to figure out ways to build that into a system in ways that are fair and in ways that are going to improve um, teaching and learning. Yeah, so one last point on this. A lot of the charter schools that are trying to be innovative in, in their approaches, they actually have teachers just on one year contracts, right? That they can that they can let them go for whatever reasons at that point. What what flexibility does that involve and does that actually have any proof that it that it does create uh, environments with more better teachers? Do you have any idea? I don't have that's a good question. I'm sure someone knows the answer to that question. Uh, but I don't. I know that the charter operators really value that aspect of being a charter school that it enables them to um, be more authentic manager of their of their teachers than they feel like um, uh, principals are able to be in the regular school system. But I don't know the data or research around it. And the common response, of course, from the other side is that, well, if they uh, if you did have complete freedom of, of at will employees for for teachers, you might get some sort of corrupt situation where um, a, a head of a school system or school district would just bring teachers on and fire others because of political loyalties or, or other concerns like or that. Or personality conflicts, which yeah. happen all the time between, you know, and you've got a range of, we should, you know, absolutely include principals in this because there's a range of abilities and personalities in the principal core also. And so teachers are rightly uh, aware of the possibility that they could get, be in a school and all of a sudden get a new principal who doesn't like them for whatever reason or has a different style than they have. All right. Well, we want to hear how Poway is dealing with this, but first our number and numbers of the week. Yes. Our numbers of the week are one out of five and one out of 17. This was really interesting to me in getting ready, ready for this podcast. I read um, a paper out of Brown University that um, did a national survey of principals and they asked them, so uh, out of all your teachers, um, how many of them or what proportion of them would you say need really need to improve, are not proficient in the teaching, in the craft of teaching and need help? And they said, um, they said about one out of five of their teachers need that kind of support. But then later on, they looped back with them and asked them, okay, what percent of your teachers did you rate as um, being less than proficient, as needing improvement? And it was only one out of 17. Mm. So that that difference, so it makes you ask, well, what's the difference? Why aren't principals um, evaluating teachers in a way that reflects their true opinions of them? And they, they do list a lot of factors, but one is it's just incredibly arduous to give a teacher a less than satisfactory rating. I've watched principals um, that I've worked with just get completely, they felt a moral commitment or ethical commitment to their students to give students, to give certain teachers um, a less than satisfactory rating. And then it triggers this really, really difficult um, process of multiple observations and documentation and interface with the union and interface with um, the school district. And so a, even a very capable principal can't handle more than one or two of those in any given school year. Hmm. And that was, I think, what Vergara was actually trying to aim at because what they're saying is like that, you know, disincentive of addressing ineffective teachers means that ineffective teachers end up overseeing the education of, of the least advantaged kids and that that can have a compounding effect on the situation. But, um, but I don't know that they made their case that it was a civil rights issue. We'll see if the Supreme court brings that up and what is working in this week. (laughs) 
what's working this week is UCSD's CREATE Center. So CREATE is um, a special uh, center at UCSD that supports teachers for, uh, well, it does teacher professional development, but it also helps students out. And they have several really highly regarded initiatives working with um, students and teachers in our region, like there's a STEM success initiative that links up professors and students from across the UCSD campus with schools and school districts. They have um, the Writing Project, which is a really highly regarded national effort that they um, house the local version of it, helping teachers to be better writing teachers, and several other projects like that. It's headed up by Micah Pollock, Susan Yonazawa, and Bud Meehan. And I highlight it in this uh, podcast because it's a community partner that's really helping teachers to get better at their craft. All right, we're gathered in the Voice San Diego podcast studio, the great Voice San Diego podcast studio. And joining us today are Candy Smiley, the president of Poway Federation of Teachers. Welcome. Thank you for having us. And Michelle Manos. She is the leader of T Plus. She's a teacher in Poway. Tell me what T Plus is. T Plus stands for Teacher Professional Learning and Effectiveness System. And it's our new system for professional growth and for our teachers that is also commonly called an evaluation system in many other districts. Okay, okay. So um, one of the things you were just describing to me um, off off the air was uh, that you were actually hired jointly by the district and the union. Tell me how that worked. Yeah, it's a a joint partnership partnership. And as many things are in our district, it's really working with the union and the district office, working together for any type of incentives, anything moving forward that is about teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And working on those together has really had a long history in our district and making um, very positive changes for students, for learning and for teachers in general. Mm -hmm. That long history of um, positive union management relations is one of the reasons I was so excited for you to come in today. Can you tell us a little bit about that history and how it plays out today? goes way back. Um, I think that it initially started with a program we call Poway Professional Assistance Program. We call it PPAP, okay? And it's for beginning teachers and teachers that are tenured in professional jeopardy. And it started at least 25, could be longer, I think it's 27 years old. Um, It's a program where our teachers actually are working and supporting new teachers and teachers in trouble. And we have a joint governance board that oversees the work of the consultants and our role that's been going that's been in place for a really long time. Both Michelle and I have been PPAP consultants in our in the mm-hmm. past. And parlay that with our joint governance board around teaching and uh, teaching and learning. We have t- uh, it's called TLC. Everything has an acronym in Poway. It's our uh, teaching learning cooperative, and it has a governance board as well that's joint jointly uh, managed by the union and by the district. And I don't know, I could go on and on. But But really, those two programs have laid the foundation Mm -hmm. for our T-plus program moving forward because we're following along, building on that history, that culture. Uh, The original PPAP governance board wrote the first teaching continuum of teaching standards for our district so that we have calibration and we have a shared vision for expectations mm-hmm. of effective teaching practice across our district. So one of the first jobs that our new T-plus committee did was take a look at the current, the older 
continuum, and we revised it based on the new CSTPs that came out, Danielson's framework, the National Board teaching standards, and we just updated and refreshed our continuum of teaching standards as part of our work, our first steps in TPLAS. So again, without that history and background, we wouldn't be where we are today. Well, describe what is TPLAS? What are you trying to achieve? What does it do? It is our evaluation system, so for other districts listening in, that's that's pretty much what it is. But we are taking a year's worth of research and background and literature on education and what's best for students and teachers in terms of, yeah, the personnel end of things, the employment part is one part, but we wanted our focus to be on professional learning for teachers. How do we make teachers get the best opportunities for their students by improving their practice. And that's really what our whole program is based on. It's a growth model. It's a strength-based approach, um, taking a look at multiple measures. I know, you know, if you've heard some of the bad press from back east, there was the whole Race to the Top initiative that put federal funding, but you had to tie it to test scores. And so they were looking only at test scores. In our district, we've with T-plus now, we've taken a multiple measures approach, and we're looking at three main areas. We're looking at standards-based evidence of practice. So that's classroom observation. What do you see? What does the administrator see when they go in? But we're also adding in a video observation and a peer observation component to that. That's great. The second multiple measure is the teacher's impact on student learning. And that's where a lot of the race to the top schools Went straight for test scores because that's that easy, quick fix. But look at the data on that, and you'll see it's not reliable, it's not valid, and it certainly isn't fair to teachers um, because of all of the, the, the validity aspects of it. And then the third area that we're looking at is teachers' um, impact or contribution to the profession as a whole. And so we really looked at those three as our main areas, and we're trying – out a lot of things. We piloted. We um, had teachers take these on through our TLCs, the classes that they can take and choose to sign up for. And we did a mini pilot last year, and we'll do a district rollout this year with a limited number of teachers so that we can get more feedback and continue to improve and refine our process. Let me just ask you about that second one. So the teacher's impact on student learning. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there what measures go into to evaluating us, that or yeah. measuring that? And, you know, in California, we don't have a state law that specifically says you have to do this or it's a certain percentage. Um, but we do have the Stall Act that does mention talking about students' learning as part of the teacher's evaluation. So we took a look at the notion of student learning objectives. And we, the first year, we just went online. We found other districts, states that were actually mandating that as their process. And we we had our teachers pick a template and try them. And then this year, we evolved to let's write a, a Poway template for student learning objective, which the groups came together and did, again, driven by our teachers and what they felt was important for documentation. And I think we need to slow down a little bit because we might be running away from some of our listeners. So I, I 
I hear you saying that the way that um, student growth is going to be integrated into the new system is mainly through something called student learning objectives. Sure. Um, and I worked a little bit on student learning objectives doing some national consulting. So that's a process where teachers um, take a look at their students at the beginning of the school year and um, set growth goals for those students that they want to attain through their um, through the semester or through the year in a way to measure that growth, and they do that in consultation with their evaluator. And then at the end of the school year, they check in and see, did students make the amount of growth, did each student make the amount of growth that the teacher um, projected or set set as an objective? That's a great synopsis. And, and in our district, the big part is this is not just a form that the teacher fills out and hands in with the scores at the end. It's about their reflection. And now that they've seen the results and what did they try along the way, and that we're asking them to document that as well. So what new strategies are you trying and what impact did that have on student learning? But it's about that reflection at the end when I sit down with my evaluator and I talk about this is my impact on student learning for this one area, what went well? What do I want to do differently next year? What are my goals for the following year based on what I learned this year? And I think we have to talk about the, typically it's the principal who's your evaluator. It may not always be um, holding them accountable as well. And so what we're doing with our permanent teachers in our pilot next year, we're continuing with the pilot, is a mid-year check-in. You don't have to do that currently. You have a, your observation, you have your conference in the beginning of the school year where you set your goal and then you're observed one semester, then the second semester, and then you have your final eval. Well, we want to put a lot more of the emphasis on that conversation around the professional learning goal and the student learning goal. So there's a mid-year check-in where you actually have another conference. Now, the feedback we got on it from our principals and our teachers was super positive because they really want to have the dialogue and the conversation about what they're doing. And that's where we can say to the principal, and how is the principal helping support your student learning goal and your professional learning goal? Because we've got to work together on that. So, does, does this replace the existing evaluations that were occurring, the sort of, I, I know in in the San checklist. Diego Unified, yeah, there's like the, you get it once a year and then you get it once every three or five and then mm -hmm. and then it's like five years after that or something. So, well, that's the plan. And so that, it does that, replace it. it mm -hmm. Okay. And, and it, it probably still won't ever be yearly for our veteran teachers, but it will be on a regular cycle and it'll be in great. And it's interesting because this first group of teachers that, that really dove into, implemented, created SLOs this year are talking about, well, next year I'm going to, and it's not their evaluation year, but it's something they have seen the value in, yeah. in terms of their own practice. And they're wanting to do this on their own, whether or not they're meeting with their evaluator. So, so teacher evaluation has, there, there's been a lot of talk and work on it over the last few years, a lot of it driven by the race to the top program at the federal government. And as you all just alluded, it's gotten very controversial. I think in large part because uh, it felt like these systems were being, teachers perceived that the systems were being set up as a gotcha right. to, to find the bad teachers. Um, it sounds to me like your system um, is really focusing on growth for every teacher and helping them to be the best teachers they possibly can. And uh, and hopefully also to identify your highest performing teachers and elevate them as teacher leaders. Uh, um, you know, so mm -hmm. that 
that bringing up the middle, the you know, Absolutely. the regular teacher and supporting them to get even better and better every year, that's where the power comes. And we, we've known this for a very long time with our PPAP program. Remember, that's for our beginning teachers who have one-on-one consultant working with them. It's very individualized. They get feedback. They're in their classroom with them every week. Um, they are the evaluator. They, they, they are the support provider and their evaluator simultaneously, which is unusual. But remember, we're, we have a governance board that oversees their work. So... We surveyed, the PFT surveyed our teachers in 2012 because we knew this was coming. We just wanted to make sure that we were ahead of it, right? We, didn't, we always say we didn't want it done to us. So we surveyed our teachers. At that time, we had about 1,400, and almost 700 teachers responded, and they gave us – it wasn't surprising, but it was it – was, it's not meaningful. Our evaluation isn't meaningful. What's important to me and what I value? And they listed – couldn't I have the PPAP experience again? That's where I learned the most because I had someone in my classroom giving me feedback and we were having a collegial conversation about what was going on. And so we wanted to, it's, it's not, it's cost prohibitive to have a PPAP program for all, now we're about 1,600 teachers for all 1,600 because a one-on-one consultant, this is very expensive. But we said, we've got to do a better job with 85% of the rest of our teachers in the what was we call it the evaluation cycle really that gotcha that's why we hate to use that word is because it's not about that we don't mm-hmm. want it about that and of course I'm the first one uh, I represent teachers our union we don't protect bad teachers we've had a program in place like I said 25 years for teachers in professional jeopardy and we we do that process very well describe how that works because that's I think the nightmare a lot of people have is mm-hmm. that they're that they're caught in a system or some struggling or disadvantaged student might might you know have to work with a teacher who's struggling herself or himself and um, and there's no way to sort of for it feels like and it's is often characterized as no way to evaluate and and maybe um, push that student or the teacher out if they need to be mm-hmm. uh, reassigned is what how does that work at Poway and what might make that um, unique there so when it teacher receives an overall unsatisfactory evaluation from their principal, that evaluation is given to the Joint Governance Board, the PPAP Joint Governance Board. It's a five members. It's myself, the president of the PFT, two teachers, the Associate Superintendent of Personnel and the Associate Superintendent of Learning Support Services. We review the evaluation. The principal comes in. We ask questions. It's the Governance Board who decides whether or not that teacher will be placed in our program or if the principal needs to do more work. Because we have, we, we need to have the evidence. If the teacher is placed in our program, it's called PTIP, okay. And a, a consultant is assigned to this teacher for support, and the principal is still the evaluator. They report to the governance board frequently, depending on how things are going. Um, that's level one. A teacher can, if the teacher shows progress while they're in level one, they can go back to the classroom. If they're not showing progress. They're either unable or unwilling. They go into level two, that high level of accountability at that point. The teacher still has a primary consultant support provider, but now you have a three-member team, uh, evaluation team. And I will tell you, we have never gone to a dismissal hearing. Teachers either return to the classroom because they got the support that they needed, or there was a way for them to transition out of teaching. And that's basically what we're there to help them do. Mm-hmm. I think that's brought up a lot is that um, 
the low number of people who might actually go through the dismissal process does not reflect the actual people who choose to right. leave voluntarily right. after the evaluation process, right? Does the, does the three evidence, uh, the evidence of practice, the teacher's impact on student learning and the teacher's impact on the profession, does that factor into their employment situation? All, th- all three of them are part of the evaluation on the final evaluation form. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And does it, do, are there any associated Waiting promotions or, or no. benefits oh. or anything that come out of it? That's why with this program, like our PPAP program, the governance board, um, we're going to have an advisory board and it will be a joint advisory board. That's when we can look at, because principals and evaluators, observers are saying, oh, look, there's not a checklist here. So how do I, how does it become overall unsatisfactory or not? Because aren't you supposed to have like nine out of 10 or something? That's not how we've ever done our work. This is about the if you have a question, if the teacher has a question or the principal has a question, they bring it to the advisory board, and we evaluate and review the documentation and say it is or it isn't or it needs more work or this teacher needs more support. So there's no checklist. The, the thing that strikes me is that um, I believe in other districts that that approach that you just described for teachers who um, have received an unsatisfactory evaluation, I don't think it's very common, that joint work. No. And what it, what ends up happening is that there's a lot of burden on the principal mm-hmm. to um, pursue the support and continuous intensive evaluation that is warranted when, uh, when someone's job is in jeopardy. So I wonder if it, um, because you have that system in place, it makes principals and teachers feel less threatened by an evaluation that says you need to improve and you need to work really hard to improve. We've got the scaffolding. We've got the support. So it's not so daunting for the principal to um, give that feedback to a teacher. And it's not so um, scary for the teacher because she knows that she's got her union by her side and, you know, working with her or him mm-hmm. um, to improve it, that's my hypothesis. Do you think that's the case? Well, I think it's the principal. It still requires an enormous amount of work on the principal's part because mm-hmm. of the uh, accountability and the documentation that is required. The principal is supported by the consultant who's supporting the teacher, and it is helpful to have the governance board there to add more people, add additional support, make those decisions around funding that support. We have the right people on our governance board. They can make decisions. So if we need to have something, they can make it happen. Well, the discussion going around statewide is a, is kind of an interesting one about the, you know, there's concern that if if we um, vacate a lot of the test scores and such that people have used in the past that we're actually potentially harming the uh, discussions about the achievement gap, that mm-hmm. there, are, there are schools that aren't doing as well as other schools right. and, and are they disproportionately, you know, impacting students of color or, or low income and, and kids within schools that yes. can Absolutely. be unnoticed. That's right. Exactly. And yeah. so, and so what I would wonder is about it. A lot of that discussion is about transparency. What about the evaluations about the test scores? Can we make public, can we make uniform so people can make decisions about if there is a school or a group struggling, what do we do about that? So is, is, are these is the data that you get out of this? Is any of that public? How do you how do you deal with um, interfacing with the public with it? So I think our district will continue to pub- obviously publicize the test scores because that's good for making site based decisions and looking at it globally and holistically. When it comes down to teacher evaluation, first of all, anything regarding a teacher's evaluation through personnel is going to be private. There will never come a time, and I certainly hope 
ever in my lifetime where a teacher's individualized test scores would be publicized. That's just never been the intent. And that's where the variables come in. And so I think the test scores being publicized can help a school say, maybe this year we're going to focus on our reading. We had a slight dip in our scores this year. So teachers, if you're going through the evaluation cycle this year, let's focus on the area of reading for your student learning objective, for your own professional learning goal. So I, I can see them using it that way in the process um, okay. in, in as it has been. And. Remember, we're still growing this program, but I really think that we need to make a connection with our LCAP, the Local Control and Accountability Plan, because that's where that has identified, the LCAP identifies our goals for our district, which if our SLOs and our professional learning goals at our school site, we should be looking at the LCAP and saying, what is it that we need to, because every community is different, right? What is it? that our community needs to focus on in the LCAP, not all the goals. It's That would be overwhelming. And then what about the teachers and their work, especially around you know the contribution to the community? I think we could do a lot better job of blending that and finding a way to use it to tell the community how we're doing. That's, I don't have that figured out yet. Yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds smart. Um, Candy, you mentioned one of the acronyms you mentioned was PFT, Poway oh. Federation of Teachers, which sig- signals that your teachers union is part of the American Federation of Teachers, whereas every other school district in San Diego is represented by the National Correct. As- um, Education Association or the California Teachers Association. So we the, are the exception. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so these the labor management relationship and the systems you've described are exceptional. I, I'm not aware of any other district in our community that um, is working at such a sophisticated level. Is it coincidence that you're an AFT affiliate, or you know what's what's your perspective on that? I only know what the previous uh, president has shared with me about why he chose. Actually, Don Raska was the president of PFT for a long time. And at the time when they were going to make a decision, which one are we going to join? It was, if, if you want to talk about the state level, CTA or CFT. And the CFT in California is really organized around mostly the community colleges. There are a few of us, K-12 districts, but not too many in California. And he said that the CFT or AFT gave a lot more latitude around how to do business. And that was... Professionally, we wanted to manage our own affairs, and we have. Um, We don't use the CFT for negotiations. We don't use them. um, We we do all of our own work. We do rely on them, of course, for a few things, but basically we make our own decisions around what everything that we do. So you're saying that's given you the freedom to pursue this Mm -hmm. Poway set of practices or that that maybe other districts don't have because – there are tighter controls from, from CTA. CTA. Well, I think CTA is changing, that's for sure. Hmm. Um, two other districts in Northern California, San Juan and San Jose, they're both CTA affiliates, and they are, I would consider San Juan our sister city. Um, we belong to an organization called TURN. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a national organization for teacher unions, and it's we're a principal member. We've been there I have no idea, long before I arrived. It's a teacher union reform network. Mm -hmm. It's for progressive unions. We share our ideas with each other. We learn a lot from each other. And um, we've broken ourselves out into regions 
because we can. it's expensive for all of us to fly two or three times a year. So we have something called CalTurn now because California is such a large state with varied uh, problems and issues to deal with. So we, we're called CalTurn, and we meet um, twice a year at least to share the work that we're doing, learn from each other. And so I think that a- ABC, which is in not too far from here in Los Angeles, and the PFT, I think we may be the only um, CFT members of Caltrain. The rest are CTA. Let me ask you, so dialing back along the same lines, is there seems to be so much polarization, so much toxicity on the discussion about um, you know, evaluations and teacher mm-hmm. performance and then and unions and such. And it feels like when you actually have a conversation with people that everyone agrees on a lot of different points that we mm-hmm. should, you know, we should respect and, and highly value teachers, that we should, you know, counsel out or help others that are struggling to get out of the profession. Right. Uh, and there's and there should be some way for people to um, to evaluate good performing good schools for all as our podcast title. Um, what do you think is the worst the 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 poison that ruins this discussion so often trust because we do have the same mutual interests if you're able to have that conversation but um trust is all, i think that's what gets in the way they don't trust each other and we have built our relationship this program ppap is still in a trust agreement uh-huh. it's not even in our contract hmm. um interesting point so what you're uh-huh. saying is that you didn't negotiate the the joint discussion over teacher evaluations or the, the struggling teacher, the, the joint powers authority or whatever it is? Well, we negotiate. In fact, okay, so we use interest-based problem solving. Uh-huh. Um, and I think when I say that, IBPS, everybody says, oh, that's what you use for your fiscal negotiations. Yes, we do. But we use IBPS, interest-based problem solving, for all of our professional initiatives. And so because we meet so often, we're talking about our initiatives, what do we want to do for teachers, how are we going to move forward, that what falls out from that is now we have to do, how does how do we get the funding to support these initiatives? And that's where the fiscal negotiations comes in. But it's really an after, it's, it's an outcome of our conversations around what do we want to do for students? What, what are we doing for teachers? And so... Those initiatives cost money and they're priorities, so that's where the fiscal negotiation part comes about. How do you sustain that trust? Because it does strike me that that is the crucial ingredient. How do you sustain that trust when there's um, turnover in leadership, either at the union side or the district side? We hope that we have the structures in place because it's been in place for so long. For example, we have subcommittees because we do our work jointly. So we have a PFT district subcommittee with finance. We have a PFT district subcommittee in personnel and PFT subcommittee with learning support services. So we meet regular each one of those subcommittees. We're meeting at least every four weeks or more if we need to or less if we don't need to. And then from those that subcommittee work, it's all around what's actually happening in personnel. What are we talking about? Which What teachers are we working with? What are our initiatives? Believe me, with personnel, we we meet and talk a lot more than it's daily. Okay, it's daily. But um, and then when we do get to full interest-based problem solving, well, we've done all our data, we've had our conversations, we've we've done a lot of thinking before we even bring it to the full full group. But how do you build trust? You have to act trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And the trust is the, the worry about trust is that there's like deep ulterior motives that are, people aren't disclosing. Is that correct? 
Well, I think because in in our district, um, we have been accused of being too close because we get along and we do so much work together. By both sides. On both sides, yeah. Some people, it's not very often, but you'll hear it every once in a while like, ooh, if you're not fighting for me, if you're not angry, then you're not working hard enough. Mm. But I really think our culture is... It's grown over time, and that is not how most people feel. I'm not going to belabor this, but I just want to, you know, there is some change and turmoil at, at Poway uh, Unified School District. What are your priorities as you work through that, uh, you know, as you negotiate and as you talk to your teachers and as you deal with potentially new superintendent and others? Well, definitely this initiative, T+. Plus. It's huge. Protect that. Oh. We, I, we put yeah. a lot of time and energy into this, and I think it and goes funding. back to we we had support all along the way, not just from within our district, and we involved our stakeholders from the very beginning, our teachers and our administrators all along the way. So we have gone slowly, and we've been thoughtful about how we've done it, and we've gotten outside research and resources through the TURN group that Candy referenced. We partnered with San Jose Unified and San Juan Unified, and We were aided by the Stanford Research Institute, who followed our three districts, gave us advice along the way, shared information with us, and published a report or findings for policymakers in the state of California. And so when you have not just people within that have given their time and energy to create a good product, but we have outside researchers coming in and saying, these people are on the right track learn from them, here's what they had to say, it really does confirm what we've long suspected, that we're on the right track and we're going to make a difference for students ultimately because that's what we want to do through this process. Are you worried it'll be upended? No. Okay. Well, Candy Smiley, president of the Poway Federation of Teachers and Michelle Manos, I really appreciate your time here and um, thank you for working on Good Schools for All. Thank you. So, Laura, you have something coming up? I do. The Education Synergy Alliance and the group that we convene called P3SD, Prenatal to Third Grade Education, we're holding a conference at the end of July at the Sheraton by the airport. It's the P3SD conference, and I really invite people who are interested in early childhood development through third grade to take a look at the conference program and and sign up. It's a great lineup. We've got the former dean of Stanford Graduate School of Education as our keynote speaker. Assemblymember Weber is closing out the day with a call to action reception and a bunch of other amazing speakers as well. Congrats. That'll be fun. Well, if you have any thoughts about teacher evaluations or how you um, think it should go, or if you're a teacher and uh, you have any particular opinions, we'd love to hear them. You can call and leave a message on our voicemail, 619-354-1085. That's 619-354-1085. Uh, leave your name and uh, where you're calling from and and specify if for some reason you do not want us to either broadcast it or broadcast your name, but we'll assume you don't mind if, if you do not clarify that. And uh, again, uh, let us know what you see working, what you see not working, what you or any other topics you think think we should cover on Good Schools for All. This has been the Voice of San Diego and Education Synergy Alliance and uh, Good Schools for All, baby. Yeah, let's see them. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.